in 10 years after that, pieces fall apart, don't they? I think I'm using a more modern version because they've been falling apart a long time before we even reached that part. Let's open our Bibles again to James chapter 1. In that you have the first 12 verses memorized, I'd ask you to follow along as we read verses 13 through 18. James 1, beginning of verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Let's pray. Father, uh, indeed we delight in your word and as your spirit works to bring illumination to this passage and in life. We ask that we might not only hear with our ears, but obey with our hearts. Thank you, Father, that it is a work of sanctification that your spirit performs in all of your children, making us more like Christ and taking us farther away from the world that we have grown up in. Now, Father, we ask that you'll give us the ability to discern, understand the truths that are here, make application of it, seal upon our hearts those truths we have need to learn, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A Canadian by the name of Anna Russell wrote a song. I will not attempt to sing it, and I did listen to this song, um, and it's just kind of a cute little ditty. She's written a lot of them. It's entitled, Jolly Old Sigmund Freud. I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed to find out why I killed the cat and blackened my husband's eyes. He laid me on a downy couch to see what he could find, and here is what he dredged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mommy hid my dolly in a trunk, and so it follows naturally that I was always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and that is why I suffer from kleptomania. At three, I had the feeling of ambivalence toward my brothers, and so it follows naturally I poisoned all my lovers. But I am happy. Now I've learned the lesson this has taught, that everything I do that's wrong is somebody else's fault. Passing the buck, you know, it's part of what we do. It's part of what comes around, and I doubt if any of you ever heard that song or sung it, but in light of what Christians struggle with, the matters of temptation and sin, it's a reality. I think it's best illustrated as we go back to Genesis 3, and Adam and Eve, our first parents, had only one command to obey. 
God says, it's all yours. Do whatever you need to do. But that tree, eh, that's the one thing you are to stay away from. The Lord confronted them immediately after a while. And as their nature was, they tried to blame everybody but themselves. Adam says to the Lord God, the woman whom thou gavest me to be with, she gave me the tree, gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Wow. Right there, he points his bony finger at the Lord, and he says, you were the one who gave me the woman, and in reality, she gave me the fruit. So it's really both of your faults. The Lord turns to, in the next verse, to Eve, and the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. Certain trick, the serpent tricked me. I was beguiled and therefore I did. But it has nothing to do with me. Adam has nothing to do with me. It's always somebody else's fault. And I think we can see how our first parents made passing the buck second nature to our particular condition. We find ourselves caught between a rock and a hard place, or with our hands caught in the proverbial cookie jar, we like to find somebody else or something else to find fault with, blame others, blame situations. Maybe it's because we don't want to fess up to something to make us look bad or to look weak. We just don't want to come along and say, you're right, I did it. Because it's embarrassing. It makes us look different than we'd want to. So we point our fingers elsewhere. I was born that way, so get off my back. You know, that's just, the, that's just I was born here and that was my family. That's just the way it was. I would never have used those expletives if he hadn't first called me a blankety blankety you know what. <laughs> I never would have said those words, but he started it, you know. And... Officer, it wasn't my fault. The idiot behind me was following so close, if I hadn't broken the speed limit, he probably would have hit me. You know, Our minds, our hearts, continue to bring forth excuses for the things that we have done. And of course, there's the old tried and true fallback, blame it on Satan. The devil made me do it. It's a spiritual battle. Satan made me do this. James, in our message this morning, makes us face the reality of temptation and sin in our lives. Remember, in the first 12 verses, he's been speaking in the context of trials, and he hasn't changed, okay? But he's taking it in the full picture of what's been going on, and he's, remember, he starts out by saying, these trials should be looked upon joyfully because God has permitted them. God brings us into these situations in order that we might learn to grow in him. And he says, if you don't know what to do, and he says, ask God for wisdom. He'll help you to understand, am I to persevere through this? Am I to make some changes? Do I stand up for a defense of the faith, whatever it is? Allow these trials to become temptations to sin, though, allows us only to have our own sinful nature rule over us. It's a part of life. 
an easy example coming out of the Old Testament, we find the children of Israel receiving an outward test, or a number of outward tests, leaving Egypt, and they had the struggles with the army of, of the Egyptians and going through the Red Sea, and then they get into the wilderness, and there was some issues there, and, and then there was the issues of, well, this is no place to, to live, you know, can't grow any crops, pomegranates or anything here, let's go back to Egypt, and then there's no water, and let's say, I'm crying about that, and this manna, I'm sick of eating manna every day, and God sent them quail, and they complained about the quail, and it just goes on and on and on. There were external tests, and none of those tests were put upon them for any judgment, but they were tests of faith, and some of them they didn't do very well with, and these tests of faith end up proving, especially for one generation, that their bones are going to remain in the desert, you know? The outward tests of faith produced an inward failing to the response of those outward tests. And they allowed their own sinful desires to rule over them instead of going forward in faith. When it came to the recipients of this letter, remember we talked about it, it was the 12 tribes scattered abroad, you know, the Jewish folks who had become believers. I think James surely had his finger on the pulse of what was going on. Um, Communications, I don't know how he found out, but he had a, a, a general tenor of the feeling, and probably it was sourced in persecution. Um, Jewish Christians all of a sudden persecuted by real Jews, Orthodox Jews, or, or by the Romans, or by the citizens of wherever they were scattered abroad. And persecution came upon them, and it was a matter of a test or a trial. And maybe it resulted in public ridicule, or maybe some lost their jobs. Maybe there was physical persecution. Maybe there was imprisonment. We don't know. But the result, no doubt, was something as an outward test to them of what they were receiving. Somehow it fell into the, uh, the fact of an inward sin. And it could have resulted in anger. It could have resulted in some jealousies. It could have resulted in an assortment of, even to the extent of apostasy. In other words, the external pressures, the test of faith, all of a sudden they say, well, if this is Christianity, I don't have anything to do with it. You know? Could have been anything. We don't know. But James presents this as a matter of how, uh, how they were going through these persecutions or tests outwardly and what they did what it resulted in. And somehow it would seem that one of the main ones that they had focused on was blaming God for their situation. I think the same situation exists today because we are still children of Adam. We still act and result upon external trials and tests, tests of faith, and oftentimes they become internal actions of sin. I'm tested externally. God is bringing me to a place where I can mature or not, and internally, all of a sudden, I'm feeling, or hey, whatever it is, you know, and it ends up I sin when that happens. 
I don't allow joy and perseverance to rule, but instead fear and bitterness and rebellion. And that's what James says. And ultimately, I can blame God for it. You put me in this situation. You, you did this or you didn't do this. When all along, God was always there, always seeing them, always going through it. I think what James presents unto us is that because of these situations, what is for certain is that it is not his fault, it's ours. He's saying, don't blame God on this because the situation you found yourself in is your fault. It's your fault. Verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil neither tempteth he any man. God tests our faith. And that happens all the time. He looks upon us favorably, all of his children, and he puts us in place of tests in order for our faith to grow. But he does not tempt us that we would fall into sin. God's design is to strengthen it in us as we trust in him, to build us up. That's the purpose of these tests, but not to make us sin. So if it's not God, then who? Then who? Verse 14. But, in other words, if God isn't responsible, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. These two verses shine a a headlamp into the perfect pattern of the believer's fall, of what happens within his life when he can successfully enter into a tragedy. He starts with the word lust. And I think for the most part, when we hear that word, we think, ooh, he's talking about bad things, you know? (laughs) But it isn't necessarily so. You could put in there the the word desire. And it's only the context of what that word issues that helps us to understand what it is. It isn't lust in the narrow sense of a sin, but in a broader sense of a desire. Let me give you a couple examples. A sin or a lust or desire for food. Well, man, that's natural. Later on this afternoon, I'm going to have some eat, the fragrance of those things being cooked, and all of a sudden, almost like Pavlov's dog, we salivate a little bit, the stomach starts to go, and I'm, yeah, I'm hungry. It'd be a natural, if I wasn't hungry, a natural desire for food. I'd like to eat. Don't go anywhere about that, all right? You know, I like to, but the scripture says in the matter of this, if that lust oversteps its bound, it can become gluttony. And it hurts our health. So it's a simple picture. Another one, a lust and a desire for sleep is natural. And, and there are times when, man, you know, we just, depends on our age, you know, uh, we just said, boy, I could use a good nap right now. And, I'm, and I feel good about it. And I enjoy it. When it comes to a certain time, ready for bed, boom, and I'm gone. And a certain time in the morning, boom, and I'm awake. It's natural. But as lust or desire for sleep goes on, Bible often talks about it as a matter of laziness, or Bible word is slothful, slothful. And it says 
that lazy man, in other words, he's entering into sleep. The Proverbs mentions it a lot. He says all of a sudden he's the slothful, he's the lazy man because he's just taken his, his steps away from that. There's also a, a lust or a desire for physical relationships between a man and his wife. And that's good because that's the way God performed it, the situation to be, for them to be united as such. But it can easily be perverted to promiscuity outside of the marriage bonds. The examples are abundant. So when you hear the word lust, he's really saying this is a desire. I lust after God's word. Well, it doesn't sound real good, does it? You know, I, I desire after God's word. Maybe it's better. But the idea is the context will tell you what's taking place. I think all of these desires and more are good things because they come from God. It says God's supply. The problem is, as James states it, when we are drawn away of our own, of our own. It isn't God's desire, but of our own lust, of our own desires, and not of the pattern that God has given. This is beyond the boundaries that God has set. And enticed. The word references a, uh, a fishing lure or a piece of bait for an animal the hunter uses. And the enticement is the, pick, the, 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 the brightness of this or the, the smell or whatever it is, and the animal is lured in, enticed by it. So it's not only a lust, it's not only that which is a desire for it, but all of a sudden there's an enticement to help me take the next step. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Can you see what he's laying out here? He's laying a pattern. She's listening to him, and all of a sudden there's a lust for something that she's presented. And now the offer, listen to what Eve thought of that bait. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, okay? She's already instituted the enticement, and she's fallen for it. Who told her it was good for food? You know, there are a lot of things that I could look at and say, boy, that'd be good for food, but, eh, you know, no, I don't. It, it's not for me. And then she goes on, and she took the fruit thereof and did eat it and gave it also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Satan cannot make us sin. He presents unto us that which is an enticement, that which is appealing to our lust, our desires, to appealing to that which is something born within me, but he can't make me do it. I have to be the one to conquer that. He tempts me, but we sin on our own. And what do we do? We take the bait because we haven't completely lost our taste for sin. Born in Adam, born into Adam and Eve, and no matter as believers how long we grow in grace in the Lord, as long as we're in this, in this world, there, there's still the taste for it a sampling of something that I desire for. And it may not be the obvious ones, but it may be something there along the way. 
And when lust hath conceived, bringing forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Then it happened one evening as David arose from his bed and he walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman. It was just a pleasant evening. Out there having a glass of lemonade on the top of the flat roof of the palace and he looks over, oh, what do I see? What should he have done? Should have nipped it in the bud, stopped it right there, walked away. But he allowed the lust to go to the enticement and the enticement into its development. And he says, and, and he, he inquired about the woman. What's he asking her about? He's a married man. He's the king. What's to ask about? The hook is already in. It's down a little bit bare, and it's just about to be inked. And he could have stopped at any time. But it went from that step to the next step to the next step to the next step. And pretty soon, he's laying with the wife of his top general. He has to kill the top general to cover up all of this stuff. And the the whole thing keeps going on and on and on and on. And this is the development that James presents. And, And it may not be in that same fashion, but anything can bring us to that particular stage of life. William Burkett, commentator from another generation, writes, Man's worst enemy, the most dangerous tempter, is the corruption in his own heart and nature, because it is the inmost enemy, and because it is an enemy that is less suspected. Who would ever suspect that I am my own worst enemy. It's my innermost. I know myself more than anybody else next to God. And yet I know what is wrong to see it, to listen to it, to partake in it, to to allow it to develop. But I say, no, it can't be because it's in me. It's not anybody else. And yet I end up blaming others. I don't want to think about myself that way. But that is who I am. I need to stop passing the buck. I need to stop blaming others for whatever it is. Stop blaming God when in truth it's me all along. I need to confess it, own up to it, and fall upon his tender mercies. That's hard. It's a hard road a hoe, as it were. Nonetheless, it's necessary. To add to this now, James adds something absolutely beautiful. He's presented a magnifying glass upon their actions of some sense. And you can only imagine how they reacted. If it's the matter of persecution, for example. You know, they could have been angry at the people who were persecuting, or angry at life, or angry at God, or whatever. But he's he threw that upon them. Verse 16. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Don't make the mistake. In other words, what he's been saying up to this point, the matter of blaming God, 
He says, don't they? Because I want you to look at the one you're blaming. I want you to look at the one you think has ignored you or put you in this place of the situation, uh, whatever, whatever it is. In our devotions at our office on, on every morning, we have, we're using Spurgeon's morning by morning. And this past Friday's reading was from November, or no, November, was from Numbers 1111. And the text is, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? And it reads in part, Our Heavenly Father sends us frequent troubles to try our faith. There's James, you know. If our faith was, if, if our faith be worth anything, it will stand the test. The true jewels fear no test. It is a poor faith which can trust only God when friends are true, the body full of health, and the business profitable. But that true faith which holds up by the Lord's faithfulness when friends are gone and when the body is sick and when spirits are depressed and in the light of the Father's countenance is hidden. A faith which can say, in the direst trouble, though he slay me, yet will I trust him, is heaven-born faith. The Lord afflicts his servants to glorify himself. He's saying, we've got faith in God to see us through because everything is nice. And that's, I think, you know, we get to the bulletins and we go through, uh, again, the list of people and the prayer and Tim mentions, you know, we got our prayer Wednesday night. These people again and again and again and again. Why? What is he doing? And Spurgeon said, the Lord afflicts his servants to glorify himself. Do we see it as that? Or do we try to find some fault upon which somebody has failed, or, or there's, there's sin involved, or there's whatever the case that we, can, that we can blame and find fault with these things. If things are going poorly, if I don't have my health, and I don't have my possessions, and if I don't have things that are there, my spirits are depressed, he says, in the light of God's countenance, that faith stands the test of time. Because it's not based upon this horizontal living. It's based upon my vertical relationship with him. He has allowed this for my good. He has permitted it into my life because he wants me to grow. He wants me to be sustained by nothing else but him alone. And that's what James is saying. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Are you crazy? No. Because God's permitted it for your own good. The, the, the little child, when if you've had kids and you've taken them in for those very first shots, you know, and there's some videos with it, and, and they're holding them down like this, and the kid sees this needle coming like this, no! And mom and dad are saying, no, what have I done to my poor child? You know, and yet it was necessary for his good. And that's how we sometimes perceive it. Our God is the supplier of all that is good. He doesn't change. He calls God the Father of lights. Just not the source of the sunlight or the light around, but he is the source of all light. Can the sun ever be in a shadow? Can the sun ever be in a shadow? Hardly. Hardly. 
That's not the purpose of that. So there are times indeed when shadows fall upon us, but that doesn't change the nature or the character of our God because he is always light. He doesn't change. There's no shadow or variableness in turning. The sun sets earlier now and all of a sudden the shadows are around us and come in, come in the church this morning. The sun is all of a sudden, it's right there. And I said, man, that used to be, you know, hours ago, but now it's shifting. God is consistent in who he is. And if we turn away from him in order to escape some hardship, we go deeper into the shadow. When faced with trials and tribulations and sufferings, ordeals, we should seek the one who can make all things new. The last verse, verse 18, of his own will beget he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The picture of, of James saying, the, the ultimate blessing from the Father of lights is that he's chosen you to be the first fruits, Christ's first fruits of resurrection, but the first products, the, 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 the harvest comes, and this is the first fruits which are offered up unto God. He's made us of such a character. He tells us that the will of our God brings us salvation and is the kind of first fruits for his creatures. What trials are you going through today? What trials are you facing today? What is the test that you are experiencing? And I knew we all do. We all have them at various times. Some are great and some are obvious, and others, they're just the, the, the little nitpicking things, but it burdens me. What keeps you awake at night makes you angry when you shouldn't be. Something known or something unknown Maybe it's a trial that's lasted days, weeks, months, or longer. James refers to them as trials of various kinds, but the question is, how am I reacting to these trials? And that's the important part. In that, if I'm a child of God, God brings upon me, for my joy and for his glory, trials, tests of my faith. But how do I act? How do I react? Mom and I had a journey down to uh, Philly for an 8.30 appointment. Let me tell you, if ever I have to go from our house down to downtown Philadelphia at 8.30 in the morning, you know, you check the GPS and it says it's going to be 53 minutes. Well, the GPS keeps going up and up and up and up, and as we're going, you know, and I said, everybody's on their way to work, and the school buses, you know. And what do you think that does to me if I have an 845 appointment at such and such a time? It was a test. It was a trial. And my stomach is going like this because I'm a person who likes to be on time to be, you know, like that. And it just continues on, and all of a sudden I say to myself, Wait a minute. He's permitted this. You know, he understands this. And as we finally got to the appointment, it really didn't matter <laughs> that we had missed 845 or not. We had too many things to do, and, and it just worked out fine. But what it did, it is a test or a trial that took me to a place of not anger. Right, Mama? You know? 
But, but there were times when he was close, you know. It didn't have to be. It didn't have to be. Tests or trials, whether they're listed as the physical needs of the, of the folks listed here or ourselves, or things that somebody said or an action that was done, he's permitted them in order that I would turn to him to find some type of an answer. Lord, give me wisdom. How to deal with this? And it continues on. Do we see these tests or trials as something to rejoice over because God is allowing them to test our faith, to bring us closer to him, to develop a closer character in our own hearts? Or do we allow them to take us to another direction, away from faith, away from the Lord, towards sin and temptation? There's, there's a, a choice that we can make in each of these cases. I'd like to close with a powerful statement about God's relationship to his children, Israel. It was at a time in their life, a time of transition. And I think it fits very well with us today. As they were about to enter the promised land, um, and he comes and he presents this to Moses, Moses to the children of Israel. Moses says, when the, Lord God, when the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, the promised land, they're still on the other side of, of the Jordan, and hast cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. Talk about challenges. Talk about uh, uh, fears. There were no soldiers in the people that left Egypt. They were all slaves. And the whole generation, you know, their bones are laying out in the, in, the, in the desert. So it was only those who were 21 and under, who had grown a little bit more, that were allowed to enter the promised land. Not a single fighter amongst them. God says, I'll take care of it. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee. Thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them and shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughters shall not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto your son. For they will turn away thy son from following me. Then... They may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. But thus thou shalt deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their images and shall cut down their groves and burn their graven images with fire. They're living amongst them and the problem is they didn't quite do this completely. They ended up, they destroyed this group and this group and this group, but they ended up getting in there and there were some intermarriages and all of a sudden there were some adaptions from the old pagan gods and they were in there. They were having a test of faith and they went to their old ways. For the Lord art, for thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. Holy. It means they were separated for him. They weren't, they weren't holy, you know. Holy meant they were separated unto the, from the world unto him. 
The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself. Above all the people that are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because ye were more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people. Now listen to this. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers. Why did God choose Israel? Because he loved them. Why does God choose us? Because he loves us. Just like Israel, we have opportunity of tests of faith. And how do we respond to the one who loves us? He puts some barricades out there and he says to them, he says, you're not going to have your daughter marry their sons. You're not going to have your sons marry their daughters because they're going to bring in their false beliefs into your family. And all of a sudden you're going to forget me and then you're going to be in trouble. And so he puts barriers up around us. Don't do this and don't do this. Keep away from this. Don't read this. Don't touch this. In order for what? Because I'm, I'm, I desire that. It's part of my nature. No, he says don't because it's going to hurt you. It's going to ruin things. So he's loved us and that he would keep his oath that he had sworn. He told their fathers, he says, I will be your God forever. He'll be our God forever. Don't dishonor him in thinking otherwise. This is the God who has redeemed us, who first loved us and purposed to work a work of grace through us. Don't let trials of life take away from you experiencing the love of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, thank you for a glimpse of history and um, the characters of the Old Testament, of our first parents, Adam and Eve, of men like Moses and David, um, very much like us. The text reveals to us their flaws and failures, but also reveal your relationship with them. And so, Father, as we are all experiencing trials and testings of our faith and some value that's there, may it also always be paramount in our minds that you love us. That's the purpose for choosing us. That's the purpose for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to be an atonement, a payment for our sin such a sacrifice of love to the extent that you would allow your son to die for sinners who hated you, even to the point of their salvation, but bringing them life. So, Father, may our relationship with you never bring doubt. You're always there. You're always working in us to develop us to be more like our Savior, your son, Jesus Christ. Continue, Father, to make us strong and make the word alive and strong within our hearts to tackle the trials and testings of our faith this day. Small or great, our trust is in you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.